Hello, and welcome once again to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, the digital audio stream in which the members of the Oklahoma Atheists are casting gods out, broadcasting our doubt, and casting about for answers to difficult questions. Today on the show, we're going through the first book of the Bible, in the King James Version, which is um, admittedly a somewhat difficult read, and we're not going to be too terribly scholarly about it. Like the first beneficiaries of the English translation, we're attempting to get a sense of what it's like to read this on its face, without the benefit of having clergy, or, for that matter, commentaries and scholars tell us how we should think about it. What, is, what does this uh, translation of the Bible say to you directly as you're reading it at home? Yeah, it's confusing. So, enjoy. Okay, so, it's Friday night. How do atheists party on a Friday night? We read the Bible, right? <laughs> I think we should start with the all-important new segment. Starting the new segment of What Are You Drinking Tonight? <laughs> Not much left. Not much. <laughs> I'm drinking Guinness Extra Stout. Nice. Which is almost too much stout for me. <laughs> it's a bit, it's, it is extra stout. Yeah. It's kind of... Um, by far the darkest beer I've ever drank. It's actually pretty good, though. It's not as creamy as regular Guinness. It's a little it, it, more... It on has the, about the color and viscosity of motor oil. <laughs> Have you never had extra stout before? No, this is the first time. Interesting. It's, uh... You could basically chew it. <laughs> it's not that bad. Is it not cold yet? Is no, that it's the... not cold, no. Okay, there's your problem right there. Once yeah. it gets cold, it's a lot better. I've got, I've got five more in the freezer. Oh... And, uh, and I'm drinking uh, old style uh, out of a bear's mug. Nice. See, for uh, for Australian listeners, you you have to understand that in Oklahoma, to buy beer that's worth a damn, you have to buy it hot. You can't buy cold beer. And uh, and so <laughs> you can't buy beer that's worth a damn that's not at room temperature. So I've got to let my beer get cold before it's. We already covered the uh, ridiculous alcohol laws of Oklahoma in the Skepticon episode. Oh, okay. Are you paying attention? Oh, I, I have been drinking. <laughs> what are you drinking, Paul? Uh, I am just drinking coffee. Some good fair trade coffee. Fair trade coffee. Fair trade means that you, you pay the coffee growers more than it's worth? I think, well... You pay extra so that they can pass that on to the coffee growers? I don't know if it's more than the ordinary market rate. I think it's more than what uh, the Folgers deflated market rate would be. Uh, because I guess a lot of sugar and coffee producers engage in what could be considered like slave labor almost. And fair trade goes through a certification process where uh, there is not any of that taking place. So, Oh. 10-4 hippie coffee. <laughs> hippie coffee. Hippie coffee, that's fine. Right. Well, if you want to take a stand against slavery, I guess that's your business. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to stop you. I'll stick with my uh, my uh, Irish beer, and I'm going to I'm going to stick with my uh, Wisconsin beer. Yeah, you never did say what you were drinking. You just said you were drinking it out of a cup. I said it was old style. Oh, okay. Yeah, you did say that. Okay. I'm sorry. In your neighborhood since 1908, if your neighborhood is around Chicago. Nice. Now that we've covered the preliminaries. Yeah, yeah. Got the important stuff out of the way. We can get on to the... Uh... So, the book of Genesis. Uh, what'd you guys think? Um, well, it's definitely the first book of the Bible. Yeah? 
Yeah, I'll give you that. <laughs> I noticed a few recurring themes in the book, which uh, I, I got to say took me a little bit by surprise. Uh, you, you know, on my, on my blog where I'm reviewing it, I have a tag for Bible sex. Yes, I had noticed that. I use that tag on more than half of the chapters of this book. <laughs> more than half of the chapters of this book are about some patriarch getting laid, possibly with the matriarch, possibly with her maidservant, possibly he's giving his wife away to a king. Uh, that happens several times. Well, but, I mean, this is setting the tone for the rest of the Old Testament where, you know... Who your firstborn son is and whether or not he's yours is a major issue of it importance. Is a major theme. I mean, just sperm is just a major theme in this book. Like, don't spill it on the ground. Be sure that you knock up the right people. And, and you know, if you turn into a harlot, make sure she's not your daughter-in-law. It's, it's just it, a, a, what men do with their seed is a really surprisingly recurring theme in this book. I, I know, you know, Genesis, genetic... Genetic material, it, it all, I should have seen it coming, so to speak. As far as the whole spilling of the seed thing, and it, there's, I would definitely have to say that sex is a, is a big theme uh, throughout Genesis. I, I had also noticed your uh, Bible sex tag on your blog. But I don't know, I think that, I think that uh, maybe it's not so much like setting up, as CJ was saying for later on, but more, um, like to have the explanatory benefit of kind of like where have all these tribes come from, and then the whole obsession with sex is just a byproduct of, or not really obsession, but the frequency of sexual themes is probably a byproduct of just the environment that it was written in. As far as, uh, I mean, that's pretty much all that was going on at the time. Like that was pretty important to the tribal, you know, which tribes came from where and and who reproduced with whom, and, and so on and so forth. But these aren't, I mean, these aren't historical tales. It's not like Lot's daughters really actually got him blind drunk and then raped him and had his children. Right. These are tales but, that are, are trying to say something about tribes. They're trying to put tribes in their places. And so it's sort of a not-too-subtle insult to Lot's daughter's offspring. I forget what... Which tribes those were the names of. Yeah, the Amorites and the, the somebody else that I can't recall right now. Whatever. They uh, weren't the Israelites. There was somebody that the Israelites were taking a shot at saying, you know, you right. guys, you guys are the right. offspring of a very uh, sickening uh, little drunken rape scene. <laughs> uh, I wasn't trying to say that it was entirely or that it was even close to historically correct or an accurate recording of, of history but more that it was a reflection of uh like what you were saying that okay there's all these tribes and this is where we came from and we don't like those people so this is why we think they came from there and so on and so forth because i think a lot of the people who are going to be listening to this haven't actually read genesis why don't we go through i mean outside of the creation of the creation adam and eve and noah which are the three most I want to I want to do that. I want to go through the, the what? common stories, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, first I want to talk about if you guys notice a, a pattern of, of themes emerging from the book, an, an overarching, and, and the theme that I noticed is that it was there was a lot of who who was begatting with whom, and, sure. and and then there's the story of how you, you know it's it's a it's a moral imperative 
to keep the tribe going. I mean, if you don't knock up your sister-in-law uh, at your father's command in what's called a Leverite marriage, then that's that's like a capital crime. God will strike you dead. So it's really, really important to pass on your seed and keep the tribe going. Uh, that's what I'm saying. It's just it's a very strong theme that goes throughout the book. Were there any other themes that you guys noticed? Um, yeah, you get the setting up of um, which you, you run into this a lot later on in Exodus and some of the other books where it is um, not only God giving a commandment but if you don't follow that commandment exactly then you get repercussions so uh, you get that with um, for example Lot fleeing you know the, his wife looking back mm. and turning to a pillar of salt. Obedience is a big thing, right? And then you get that with the uh, the sacrifice of your firstborn son. Sacrifice of your firstborn son. You get it with uh, uh, Abraham's two sons. You know, trusting and you know the whole theme of you know basically not only do you have to do what I say, but you have to do what I say exactly how I say it, or don't don't just go screwing your your handmaiden. You right. I was I was promised this offspring to you and Sarah, which, not you and Hagar. Right. Well, this all sets up the 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 theme later on of the the importance of the law and strict adherence to the law exactly as it's laid out. Which is why you then later on when you get all of these. I mean, this is this is the setting up the justification for all the arcane details of the law later on. Hmm. Okay. You know, I, I would I would point out that the story of Onan kind of perfectly uh, captures both <laughs> both the theme of obedience and how important it is to pass on your seed to the next generation. Sure, because that, that that whole story is, is is this perfect mix of those two themes. You'd oh, be, you'd better impregnate I, that that woman or else. <laughs> I would say uh, back on what CJ was saying about the whole theme of faith and everything else in. Uh, those open Yale courses that we'd mentioned in the first podcast, uh, she brings up the point that there's almost a uh, tension of what God is trying to make the relationship between man and God. Whereas at the beginning, it was kind of like, here you go, here's your free will, and that didn't work out very well. And so then we had the fall, and then he still kind of left them with free will, and then everybody you know, got really evil, and so he had the flood and destroyed everyone and started over with a with Abraham, and then, which complete, you know, unyielding blind faith enough to go out and circumcise yourself and then ultimately sacrifice your son, and then decided that maybe that wasn't best, and so he was trying to find, like, a medium between complete unyielding faith and, and some self-preservation or some reason in there, too, which I thought was an interesting point. I'd, I'd never heard it explained like that before. <laughs> or I, I think isn't she being a bit anachronistic there? I mean, isn't free will more of a much later theological development? Well, I don't know. I think, though... I think, where, where do any of these characters in Genesis exemplify free will? Well, they do choose to eat of the fruit. Right. As as soon as it's put there, they choose to eat it. And it's not like there was any sort of deliberative process. I don't think that... Um, I don't think... I don't think free will, as we understand it, in the nuanced form in Western philosophical thought, is any kind of way outlined in the 
Bible. I think it's just generally kind of understood that people are responsible for their actions and that they're, they're agents that are capable of making choices. But there's no kind of articulation of, of right. that. It's just all assumed that it's true. Yeah, but the, the theme of, of being responsible agents that make moral choices, that's, you know, every culture has that. But in the right. in the, the Garden of, of uh, Eden story, what you have there is God says, don't eat the fruit. And they're like, okay. And then Satan says, or excuse me, sorry, that was anachronistic. The serpent says, mm-hmm. no, go ahead and eat the fruit. And then they do that. So they first they obey God, and then they obey the serpent. That doesn't look like, like any sort of deliberative uh, process there. They're just doing whatever uh, somebody uh, tells them to do. That looks childish to me. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree that free will came along later. And she says that. Uh, but I don't know. I guess you have a point that it did happen. Like, it was very much God said this, and they did it, and then the serpent said this, and then they did did it, uh, which does seem very, like, oh, okay. Uh, there wasn't that much of a deliberation. But what about after the fall, though? I mean, well, you know, they, he, he chose, Cain chose to kill Abel. And, I mean, even going against, uh, you know, God warned in there. I want uh, to talk about the, the fable of Cain and Abel uh, really quick. Do you... Do you buy Daniel Quinn's take on that? That it really is a story about the conflict between those who had domesticated plants and were living an agrarian lifestyle and those who had domesticated animals and were living a more nomadic, uh, free-range lifestyle? Um, do I buy it? I mean, do you like, think it's a, it's a... I definitely think it's really interesting because until I had read that book, I had never heard anything... Like, I never heard it explained in quite that way before. So I definitely thought that was an interesting explanation of it. Um, I it, it makes it makes a lot of sense to me, <laughs> honestly. I mean, I think contextually it makes a lot more sense within the context of what of explaining the need for a blood sacrifice later on. Well, I'm and the other thing, the New Testament, I'm talking about blood sacrifice in the Old Testament, where you have to shed blood. It, and, you know, for the sins. Well, when when we were talking about uh, themes, I mean, that not this almost sort of the same theme that we have? And whenever you were speaking of themes earlier, I was thinking more of you start out with Cain and Abel and this whole agrarian versus, you know, hunter-gatherer tension, and then it goes on uh, with well, Babel. speaking, they're... they're... They're shepherds, not hunter-gatherers. They're okay. Yeah, yeah. They have flocks, right? Um, but it goes on with uh, the Tower of Babel, and I don't know. To me, like you could almost look at that as it was an anti or another bit of anti-establishment. Like, look at these people; they're building a city, they're building this tower. They're all, and that's not what God meant for us to do. He meant for us to. They're settling have, in. They're settling in, farming the land, and building up cities. Right, right. Which but is what the people of Mesopotamia were doing as opposed to the Semites who were still roaming and nomadic at the time. Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, I, I think it makes sense even in context of the text because it goes on to the, the story of the Tower of Babel. And, uh, and it, what's interesting, though, is that eventually, there at the end with this story of Joseph, uh, they do end up, like, there is a, a sort of settling there at the end. But anyways, sorry, continue. <laughs> the temptation to settle, to, to be, you know, to become civilized, as it were, 
is, is usually tied up with Egypt in this story. You know, it happens to Abraham first, uh, um, foreshadowing what happens to Joseph and later to all the tribes. Yes, I would agree with that. It is definitely intertwined with Egypt. You get the sense know. that the Israelites suffered from a bit of Egypt envy in this book. Perhaps, or it's just... Um, I did. Uh, <laughs> I got the sense there was some serious Egypt envy going on. Because, I mean, first, Abraham, uh, you know, his his wife is so hot that the Pharaoh has to have her. And, he's, you know, and then, oh, God brings plagues on the Pharaoh. And then and then later on, all in all the dealings with Egypt, there's something that Israel has that's so amazing that, that Egypt wishes it had. Uh, Joseph's uh, knowledge and blessings later on, in the, toward the end of the book. It's, it's always the case where the Israelites just have some... There's definitely a, the, uh, an Israelite exceptionalism built into it, but that only makes sense. I mean, all of the, all of the different, like the Babylonian religion and all that, had exceptionalism for the representative group built into them. Right, they all had their specific myth about... I want to go back to the Cain and Abel thing because I think you guys are way off base with the whole relevance of the agrarian culture versus the. Uh, I think I mean we have to understand that. Well, what? Yeah, one of them raised. I understand animals, that. and the other one raised plants. I understand that, but if you look at the context of it within. Um, You know, one gave an offering of blood and one gave an offering of grain. And, you know, God says, you know, if you do what is right, you'll not be accepted. You, you'll be accepted. And, and he's telling Cain this, Cain, you know, if you'd done what I told you to do, which was give me a blood sacrifice, I would have looked happily on it. Why are you, you know. He didn't say blood sacrifice up front. Right. There's no point at which God says what kind of sacrifice he wants. But it's no, actually, I mean, it, it's they each a, sacrifice what they have. Specifically implied, though, says if you give every seed. Uh, hold on. Uh, chapter four, verse six. The Lord said to Cain, "Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It, it desires to have you, but you must master it." And, I mean, it's implied there that he didn't do the right thing. That he's Sorry, I thought that verse was specifically about the... Because that was... I thought that was about what Cain was, was tempting to do, what he was thinking about doing. Right. That w- I thought that was specifically when Cain was thinking about... Like, right before that, when he's talking about his countenance being fallen or whatever, I thought that was specifically about whenever he was maybe contemplating uh, murder. I didn't think that had so much to do with the sacrifice. I thought that was after the fact. Because the sacrifice actually... Well, it is after the sacrifice, but I, I and it's read that as stated. I mean, it's specifically stated that God favored the blood sac- that God favored the animal sacrifice. Yes, yes, but it doesn't say why. But I mean, this is setting up a justification later on for the the, the whole idea behind. I mean, read in context. I mean, I think we all agree that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers all probably were kind of formed formed as a story around the same time. And that Genesis, I mean, these these actions in Genesis are a justification for the later Levitical laws. How do you know that they didn't justify the Levitical laws because of this story? Because I don't think there's any reason. I mean, 
because there's good historical reason for thinking that the Jewish sacrifice, Jewish religion is a is a byproduct of earlier Babylonian religions. You see what I'm saying? Like, like the the Jewish religion didn't didn't um, form out of the events of Genesis. The events of Genesis are are mythical. Right. We can all agree on that. But the the question is whether the Cain and Abel the Cain and Abel story doesn't say why the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof are more pleasing unto the Lord than Cain's offering, which is presumably right. but a, a, context, the fruit of a ground. But read in context in the in the later books where it talks about the smell of the blood being pleasing to God, it's implied. No, it's if you're an, if you're a shepherding people and and what you value most is your flocks, it makes sense that what your God values most is what you value most is your flocks. Okay, well then why would Cain's offering not be as... Because Cain wasn't a shepherd. Cain was an agrarian. Well, why wouldn't it... I mean, right, I understand, but that he's offering the best of what he has. Why wouldn't... Because the people writing the story are shepherds, not agrarians. That's the whole the whole point of Quinn's analysis of it, is that is to say that from the point of view of a, of a shepherding people, it's clear. You don't even have to explain why Abel's offering is superior. Okay. Because you're a shepherding people. Okay, that makes sense. All right. I understand. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that it's the right, only right explanation the I've heard that makes any sense of why there's no explanation between Cain and Abel. Okay. Yeah. Now, of course, the pastors, they'll tell you, well, it's all about the blood, the blood. No well, sacrifice without the shedding of blood. You know? Sure. But, but that's a much later anachronism. Well, I mean, it's... But, no, I mean, it's not really because there's specific references to the smell of blood being pleasing... The smell of sacrificial blood being pleasing to God. In 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 like Le- Le- Leviticus or yeah yeah yeah, Le- yeah which is still later books though. right but books that I don't think it's an unreasonable thing were written around the same time. I mean these these are a continuous story. Okay, I think we all agree the Pentateuch was probably uh, uh, the first four. Uh, I'd give you, but not not the fifth. Well, I think sure I sure. I think it's clear that Deuteronomy was a later author. Sure. Well, at least up through Numbers. Was all... I mean, I don't think there was any one author on the first four, and I don't... I think we clearly know it was not Moses, and... Moses was... I'm not sure if it was Moses. Right. Um, So... I I have no confidence in this Moses hypothesis. My understanding of 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 the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is that they were oral traditions that eventually got written down, that developed over time, out of a religion that was precursored by other Babylonian religions. And, and by it, and there are at least three distinct strands in there. You know, there's the priestly strand, and the, the Elohim strand, and the Jehovah strand, you know, all sure. these different um, elements of what eventually became a single religion. Right. So okay. I think uh, we're all in an agreement. Enough about enough about Cain and Abel. What I guess a central question is of, of the the well known fables in this book, uh, which ones resonated or had like moral lessons that we thought were interesting? I mean, I I just now finally feel like I understand possibly what Cain and Abel were about. Um, did you guys when going through the other ones? Did you get any new insights uh, from from these other? Did you find anything really, I guess, to lead off on a positive note, did you find anything 
worthwhile. No. You know, you're reading it and like, oh, that's that's actually pretty good. No. Paul? Wow, nothing at all? <laughs> well, no, I mean... Um, I mean the, the, don't the, screw Pharaoh's wife. Right, well, I mean, yeah, the, basic, that... <laughs> the basic theme of the, of the first that wasn't books of the Bible wife. are obey God, obey God, obey God. Yeah. I mean, a, yeah. And um, do exactly what he says, don't question, obey. And you'll be rewarded, and if you don't obey exactly, you'll be punished severely. So no, I didn't well, get anything positive out of it. <laughs> Jacob fought with God. I mean... Wrestled. Wrestled with God, yeah. And he Abraham got... Abraham haggled. Abraham haggled with God. Well, what if there's only 40 righteous men in Sodom? And it's not exactly like God told Joseph to go to get himself sold into slavery and, and go to Egypt. And he was still quite blessed in spite of... I think if I had something positive to take out of it, uh, or something that I liked, it would be that Joseph was... Uh, very optimistic and was very industrious and he benefited from that. Uh, I thought that was kind of, you know, <laughs> it was pretty crappy. His brothers wanted to kill him and then sold him into slavery and then, but he ended up being a servant and working his way up and then he got screwed by his, or he didn't get screwed, but <laughs> he got framed for it. So and sent to prison and then ended up becoming, you know, the Pharaoh's right-hand man. And it, because of his countenance and his responsibility and his, and all of that through, I mean, he went through a lot of crap. Uh, Don't forget that he had incredible sex appeal. That he did. He must have been that's really, wherever, really, whatever society you're in, that's handy. Yeah, apparently. That's probably what it was. We'll just chalk it up to his good looks. Yeah. yeah. He really wasn't that great of a coordinator. He, uh, Pharaoh just had a crush on him. Yeah, he's the uh, the Joe Biden of his time. Just great looking. What did you get out nope. of the <laughs> the Jacob wrestling with God thing? Like what? what did I... Yeah, I mean, there's that. There's other than explaining why they have that particular dietary practice. What? What do you? I mean, what? What does that story seem to? That's where Israel came from. I mean, that right. literally means one who wrestles with God. Yeah, and yeah. also is why we have the word wrestle now. <laughs> Israel is etymologically, it's the ancestor of the word wrestle, as they cool. use in Stillwater today. I guess it's it was just I guess it's just a mythological. I mean, I guess it's just a mythical story to explain the the origin of the name and the and the particular dietary practice, but. I thought it was really interesting. Sure, but I was wondering if there was any—I mean, if there was any ideas behind a larger theme there that's supposed to be drawn from it, or if it was just like a kind of a. Well, I thought it was odd because it seemed almost. Speaking of things, it seemed almost out of place because, like you said, right. it seemed like there's a lot of faith and obedience. That's what I'm getting uh, at. That, like it. And then he wrestles and and gets blessed. Like right, that, but not only does he wrestle, but like he. Wins the, I mean, he essentially wins the wrestling match. Yep, right up until God uses his magic cripple right, finger. Right, <laughs> Is it really, I haven't, I, I meant to do some reading on it and I didn't get a chance to tonight about if it is, it is, like, accepted as God. Like, it, it may be an angel or... I can tell you some... later, Christian interpreters uh, say that it's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's God in human form. Right. 
come down to wrestle with Jacob. Well, but that's just, of course, a, a Christian And I know the NIV, layering. the NIV particular, I mean, the, the NIV recognizes it as, says that it was God. Really? That's the version that I'm reading from. What chapter was that in? Sorry. Uh, 32, starting it's with 32. verse 22. Well, I mean, Jacob himself suggests that it was God because after he's done with the match, he says, "I've seen the face of God and survived," or something. Right. Well, and, right. And right. There's a twenty verse twenty eight says, "The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome and prevailed." So, what yeah. is what is the the biblical theme of struggling with God? I mean, it has to be something more than just. That recurring theme of Israel being a stiff-necked people that keeps going back to idol worship. I assume there's something more than that, because that's a recurring theme throughout the whole Old Testament. That's true. That may be setting that whole idea up. You know, they keep like, well, we'll go back to pure worship. No, we'll go back to Asherah. No, we'll go back to Baal. That may be an early justification for the need for things like prophets and stuff like that. Yeah, that that tension of uh, not having... Not having gotten religion right is that's at least throughout the first two thirds of the Old Testament, it's a pretty constant thing. And even actually, you know what? All the way up through the Minor Prophets, you get that. But I'm not sure if that was if that's what it means to wrestle with God. Maybe wrestling with God is something more akin to the the Muslim idea of uh, an internal jihad, a struggle to become righteous, to overcome temptation. I don't. I don't know. That, that that's definitely a part of it that I would want to do further study on because it 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 seems I don't know maybe out of place. If you have great insight into what it means to wrestle with God, email us. At podcast <laughs> Please send us an email. Podcast <laughs> at yeah. Um There's also the the first incident. Genesis has the first instance of interpretation of dreams. I thought that was really weird. <laughs> Just, well, it's a common theme in the Old Testament. I know, just the idea... Well, it's common for the times. I mean, that's sure. like what the Egyptians did. Right. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's, it's, I can't think of... I mean, if there's a more perfect way to take your actual subconscious desires and fears and project them onto the deity, I can't think of a, a better way to do that than to say that dreams come straight from the gods. I need more beer. CJ's going to go on a beer run. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to just uh, hang out for a second. I did spill his beer, which is a terrible thing, but yeah. it doesn't show up in the carpet, which makes me almost off the hook. I'm going to get it off the wall. Okay, so... Uh... Where were we? <laughs> somewhere uh, in the book of Genesis. Yeah, somewhere in there. We were talking about themes, I think, and uh, CJ brought up the theme of obedience and faith. I was said something about agrarian versus the herdsman, uh, or maybe even just anti-establishment at least until the end. Uh, what about you, Damien? Have you noticed, what, what themes would you, I guess uh, you were talking about... Procreation's a big theme. Procreation, yes. Uh, sexual continence a big theme. Amazing feats of, of virility, I guess, is content of the first category. There's a lot of well, old, old men knocking up their wives or daughters. A lot of a lot of really perverted sex in this book. I'm surprised that Christians read it aloud indeed. in church. Uh, I'm guessing they just select. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they do because there were parts in there that I had, like the whole thing uh, with Onan, that I was like, wow, 
I never heard that one. That's the common go-to for opponents of masturbation. Yeah. Huh. Which, Interesting. Which makes like, which no sense at all, have... because it doesn't say that Onan was by himself spilling his seed. Right, right. He just right. pulled out. Yeah. Which, See, you know, Catholics can lean on that. Right. That was the first thing that I thought of, was the Catholic, or that the birth control type. It's like, oh, you can't waste that, but... I, I didn't see a masturbation reference in there at all. <laughs> right. It seems to me like we should be unsurprised that the most popular religions in the world spring from a tribe that emphasize two things in particular. Reproduce your genes, reproduce your memes. you got to do those two things. You've just got to do those two things. It, I don't sh- know that it shouldn't she- shock us that those two ideas made it into the most popular religions I in the world. I don't know that Judaism pushes reproducing your memes outside of the context of your own tribe. Hmm. But there, there's no it's very important that you pass on the ideas of the Torah to your children. Sure, but there's no emphasis whatsoever on evangelizing outside of the Christian uh, or outside of the Jewish tribe, which is why they're not among the most popular world religions. Yeah. But Islam they, and Christianity, which made that change, are. That makes yeah, that's true. They do try to spread circumcision. And they did a pretty good job of it. Too. Well, yes, but only to the places where they live. Like they don't—they're not trying to convert. Right. They're not trying to take over the world with. Right. They're not. They're not trying to increase their tribe outside of reproduction. It's important that your neighbors be uncircumcised, so that way, when you're Samuel and you want to demonstrate that you killed a bunch of Gentiles, you can collect their foreskins. But we'll get to that <laughs> in a later book. Uh. Like the precursor to scalping. Just think of, yeah, oh, I think I, I, I don't know. Oh. I think I'd go with a good scalping. I'm not sure. Although interesting, uh, I should send you this link. Uh, biblical circumcision is somewhat different than what modern circumcision is. You're right. It was it was less complete. Right. Much. Well, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to phrase it. Yeah, because um, some. Some of the Judean athletes had had enough foreskin left that they could they could stretch it out and tie it up during the Greek games, um, right? But that's not exactly relevant. I guess it's relevant to this book. This is where we get the whole covenant of circumcision. Yeah, uh, we do get that. I will give the uh, I will give the the Old Testament this credit that there's not any female genital mutilation in here anywhere. And there's plenty of misogyny. I was going to say, there's some, some subjugation of women in there. <laughs> plenty of misogyny. But you, you don't get the emphasis on female genitalia that you get on male genitalia. Hmm. I guess not. There's, yeah, there is the talk of God opening and closing wombs, but that's more of a, you know, if you're barren, you're not blessed. If you're fruitful, you're blessed. Right. It's not really about the lady parts themselves. What, what does that say of the, I mean, if, if you're barren, you're not blessed, and if you're fertile, you are. What does that say of the, the founding mothers of, <laughs> it seemed like they were almost all barren until. Right, until God blessed them. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's it. It was an opportunity for God to show how badass he was. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to let this, I'm going to wait until they're in their 90s, and then I'm going to make him mutilate his penis, and then he's going <laughs> to knock her up. That's how great I am at being a fertility god in addition to being a war god. Right. So he's just adding stuff to his resume at that point. Gotcha. Could could that have been uh, implied that perhaps 
circumcision was something to aid infertility? I don't know. I guess he didn't really have any trouble reproducing. No, well, there's no. I haven't seen any indications of that anywhere in the Old Testament that that the circumcision itself was. I think the circumcision itself was a sign of submission. Right. And Maimonides, uh, the great rabbi, Maimonides would actually say that circumcision was designed to decrease virility. That it was designed to weaken the organ and weaken the male uh, lust. Okay. Which is interesting. Since yeah, which, like which the, would it's kind of like the old, the the Judaism's alternative to the burqa. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's a bit less public. Yeah, I want to put a plug in for this uh, for another book that I have been reading called The Christian Delusion. I think I mentioned it a couple of podcasts ago. It was edited by John Loftus, but there's a really good chapter in there on the cosmology. Of the Old Testament, which, uh, and it really has a good discussion of, um, the flood story and the, the kind of information it gives you on the Jewish cosmology of, uh, of the time and also of, uh, gives you good reference points for comparing it to the other cosmologies of the other religions of the area that they have texts of. Like the idea of a, of a firm dome over the planet. Right, well, yeah, and the idea that there's water above and below. Mm-hmm. And that, like, the water above, like, it's not the, it's not, I mean, the, the whole idea of it raining, you know, and flooding the earth is not really as accurate as the idea that God, like, there are these waters being held back by some right. kind of barrier and God let the barrier go. Yeah. And the bl- they didn't think of the sky as just blue because of the, right. the way that diffraction works in, in air. They thought of it as blue because there's a mass of water being held back. Right. And and regardless of the theological context of all that, I think it's just interesting for from a historical standpoint is it gives you some kind of insight into uh, the the cosmological views of the of the people of that part of the world at the time. I was going to say, that essay, does it bring up... Uh, is it- Enuma Elish, the Babylonian epic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it has, I was actually. It has a sub chapter on uh, Egypt, within the within the chat within the essay. It has a section on Egyptian cosmology, Mesopotamian cosmology, um, the biblical cosmo- and the biblical cosmology, and comparing. Uh, the biblical cosmology to how to how it was uh, influenced by Egyptian and Mesopotamian cosmology. I mean, Mesopotamian meaning basically the Babylonian. Well, I was just in the uh, the lectures that I was listening to. Uh, she talks about in Enuma Elish the, I guess their the Babylonians creation myth was the there was a woman who was the who was water, essentially. Tiamat, and he defeated her and split her in two, kind of like a clamshell, so they're above and water below, and then made that the firmament. And uh, she goes on to say, which is interesting that I had never known before, that in Genesis, the actual Hebrew, uh, it's not the deep, it's deep, as in proper, as in like a name, which, I don't know, kind of references perhaps that it was a later, or like their adaptation of that cultural story, which is really interesting. There's also the um, 
the I mean and, well and, and that the, that essay also discusses the the exceptionalism things you know the the lines in there about uh, well there's there's lines especially in some of the later books but there's a couple of Genesis that are uh, the Enuma Elish and Genesis have you know very similar wording seems like the people that wrote Genesis were aware of the of these other you know stories right so anyway I thought that was an interesting thing and you get you get this later on in some of the others like in Psalms and Numbers and some of those too but but there are a couple examples in Genesis particularly when you're talking about the firmament and the um, the how God made man from dust and breathed life into him but yeah everyone needs to read that book that's just one more reason to recommend that book <laughs> of course I'm not going to take CJ's book advice seriously until he attends at least one book club I have attended book clubs well I mean you know one more book since, club? since he started boycotting so okay um uh, uh, everybody, uh, what uh, if you had to bring up just one or two stories from the book uh, that aren't necessarily terribly well known that you'd like people to read or think about, what would it be? And I'm going to go first here. The Rape of Dinah. Because that, that brings up so many difficult issues. Like, first of all, how is it that he, he rapes her and then he falls in love with her? Right, and he's like, well, "Oh, I speak." He spoke tenderly to her. When did he have time to speak tenderly to her? I should mention this is the Prince of Gerar uh, raping uh, this this Hebrew woman. And he falls. He falls for. Her. He falls for her so bad that he convinces the entire town to get circumcised as adults. Which I would love to see that speech. That'd have to be better than a Barack Obama speech. I somehow doubt it was voluntary. Well, it it. It made it sound voluntary. And since we're talking about a myth, it almost doesn't matter. Because right. it's not like there's how it actually was. Right. Uh, he goes to the city gates, makes this they, they make this speech, and then all the men get circumcised. And just a few days later, as they're still very sore, uh, I forget how the King James puts it, but it uses the word sore, uh, Dinah's two brothers come in on this amazing two-man vendetta and slay everyone with their swords, which... Strikes me as an awful lot of effort. I know that circumcision was unpleasant, but did it really incapacitate them that much that they weren't able to defend themselves at all? Or are these brothers just that heroic? Are they just like total Rambo-style badasses? It's a myth, Damien. Okay, well then what's the... If it's a myth, then it's supposed to have a point. What's the point? The point is that you don't defile Jewish women. Because there's there's some pretty... Uh, Better not be getting into those Jewish wombs. That is not okay. Right. I think um, I think if you are looking for a an interesting theme to keep your eyes open for when you're reading Genesis in particular, I think it is the uh, complete lack of omniscience and omnipotence of the God of Genesis. Because there's time and time again where he shows that a, he is not all-knowing, and B, he is not all-powerful. Mm. Unpack that a little bit. Well, the first example of lack of all-knowingness is the Adam and Eve 
false story. Where after they eat of the fruit, God comes looking for them and has to ask them what's going on because he doesn't. Like he specifically asks, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Like he asks, you know, then he asks, what is this you have done? You know, as if implying that he doesn't know. And so that that would imply a lack of omniscience. But could it be that he doesn't know, or that he just wants to see if they will lie to him? Um, Does he not know if they're going to lie to him? Right, right. Like, like you would That's think true. that somebody that was all knowing would never need to ever ask any questions. And there, and there's you know examples of him, you know, there's an example in Cain and Abel where God, you know, after the murder, what have you done? Um, you know, there's uh, there's examples in, um, well, then you get the wrestling. Jacob, not only wrestling with God, but successfully wrestling with God until the point where God has to use a magic trick to beat him. Right. So And then has to bless him. <laughs> God regretting his actions after the flood. Basically, I mean... Uh, not only does he not have the foresight to see what's going to happen when he lets uh, uh, these sinful people out of the garden, but then he regrets the way that he handles the situation thereafter. So there's a lack of foresight plus regret. These are all very human characteristics. Oh, you also get the first example of the smell of blood being pleasing to God in Genesis. Does it actually say that? Uh, chapter 8, verse 20. When Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some all, some of all the clean animals and clean birds, because remember he had seven of each of those. Uh, I think seven males and seven females. Right. If I remember right. Indeed. you got to have extra That's sacrifice. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again shall I curse the ground because of man, blah, 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 blah. So yes, you get the first reference to the smell of... Uh, burnt animal flesh being pleasing to God. In that one passage, God has a heart and a nose. <laughs> it's fairly anthropomorphic right there. Well, we were created in his image. Evidently. <laughs> and it, I'm just curious, but does he have a foreskin or not? That's a great question. For that matter, why would he need testicles? It's not like he's married to Asherah or anything like that. Anymore. Anymore. They split up. <laughs> Before this book was written, I think they split up. That's actually an interesting point, that there's not really, like, a, uh, when compared to the other religions of the land at the time, uh, there's not really a mythology, is it? There's not really, like, a lot of stories about, like, God and how he came to be. Like, I'm thinking of, like, the Romans and their, you know, soap opera of gods, and or which that wasn't at the same time, but or even, like, the Babylonians and their creation myth like there's gods up there all doing stuff and whereas this god just kind of is <laughs> yeah right you were looking for one more example or you were looking for more examples of god not being all powerful or all knowing uh, i think the tower of babel is a particularly good example um if you look at ch uh, chapter 11 um starting with verse uh eight or verse 5. But the Lord came down to the seas of the city of the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And then, you know, the Lord scattered them over the whole of the earth. So it was like he had to interfere to prevent them from becoming... God, God had to interfere to prevent mankind, essentially, from becoming uh, all-powerful. <laughs> right. The idea that God would fear man's achievements uh, seems like a very small-minded kind of... Right. Um, another theme that I, th- I think possibly the most prominent theme throughout this book and the next and the next... Um, Hebrew supremacy, and I mean supremacy in the same sense as white supremacy. It's it's a very racist uh, sort of our tribe is better than everyone else mentality. Not only are they chosen of God uh, from among all the tribes, but you know their patriarchs are incredibly virile. Their matriarchs are are irresistibly hot. That all the kings want to have sex with them, um, and they've been they've been given the land uh, of uh, the the Girgashites and the Rephaites, the Malachites, Sodomites, Perizzites, and all those other ites to conquer for themselves. Uh, there, there's a throughout this whole book, it's a theme of the Hebrews are the one tribe that really matters, and everyone else should just kind of get out of their way. I find that maybe it's just ironic. Not sure if there's even any point <laughs> in taking offense at this. I don't don't think there I don't think that there's anything particularly unusual about it. I think every group of people in that region of the world at the time held to the same exceptionalism. They all thought they were more exceptional than all the others. I mean, there's all these references to Marduk being the, you know, god above all other gods and... Yeah, okay. Uh, but but they, unlike the Hebrews, didn't manage to go on to screw up Western civilization uh, and spread their word throughout the entire globe. <laughs> Well, I mean, would they, for a long period of time, the Babylonians were considerably more successful than the Jews? <laughs> well, yeah, and and they did some pretty terrible things with that success, with that power. I don't think we can blame. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think we can blame the people who wrote Genesis for the. I I I would say that there's. I would say that it's it's not shocking to me that the Americans, in the course of their uh, taking this continent from the native inhabitants, emphasize the idea of being a new Israel and a chosen people, and de-emphasize the idea of love thy enemies. Uh, it, it just it seems to me that the the idea of of racial supremacy is there to be drawn upon for future generations. I think it's important to point out though, that there's nothing exceptional about Judaism in that regard. I don't think there's any religion that developed in the world during that era that didn't have those same flaws built into it. Well, just happens to be the case of Judaism. What's exceptional one. is that they passed it on to future sure. generations so that that right. that seed of I don't want I don't what I'm saying is I don't I want to be careful to point out that there's nothing there's no evil in these scriptures that we couldn't find in other contemporary right. myths. Right. Yeah. There's nothing particularly special or bad about the Jewish traditions. They're, they're, it's it's actually surprising. I can how still be un- pissed that people still believe them. Though, sure. Right? It's just surprising <laughs> how unexceptional they actually are. This being an atheist podcast, I get to be upset that people still believe this shit. Sure. Okay. Paul, any comments there? Uh, I, just, I just don't want you to be. 
I want I want you to be clear that like like this isn't a. It's not like the Babylonians were all peace and love and happiness. Right, right. <laughs> it's not like this is like something special to like the Jewish faith. It just happens right. to be that the Jewish faith came through the the came down to you know there are particular writings survived better than the writings of some of the others. If there was a tribe called the Levites that just welcomed everyone with open arms, I'm guessing they got run over and never managed to write anything down. <laughs> Fair enough. Evolution doesn't lend itself to peace and love, social organizations. Are you talking about evolution, the biological process, or are you talking about something else? Just the survival of certain cultures, as far as, uh, I'm sorry, I loosely used the word of evolution. The idea of the evolution of culture, I mean, it's just not going to survive and perpetuate itself if it's peaceful. Right. Like, well, yeah, I mean, Akhenaten's religion didn't survive him. <laughs> yeah. The only reason we know about it is because they weren't completely successful from eradicating his name from the face of history. But they tried pretty damn hard. And, and for the <laughs> record, if, if Constantine had taken love thy enemies seriously, we'd never have heard that Jesus had ever said that. It's true. True. <laughs> Valid point. Um, it's, it's nice that they kept it in the book at all, but we know it hasn't been really used. Uh, back to the text. Oh, uh, Genesis. Yes. Okay. Some, something that has a sorry this, this, pointed. this important new new tradition of what are you drinking tonight is going off on tangents. See, he's on coffee. He's all like, let's keep on track. I'm really focused. He's got that laser-like coffee focus. <laughs> the Ritalin of coffee. Um, in Genesis eleven seven, where we just were, it says, "Let us go down." Oh yes. And us, us is used throughout the beginning of Genesis, which uh, now I don't remember where it was. Where is it? Isaac, whatever they were about to pack up and move, and uh, they had to collect their house idols. Or there's another point later on where it referenced like other idols or whatever, and it was like we need to take these. One, one of the one of the daughters of. Uh... Was it Jacob stole all the household gods? Yeah. And packed him up in her donkey and then sat on the donkey and said, I'm having my period. I can't get up right now. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was phrased more beautifully in the uh, King James. Uh, but anyways, the, the uh, monolatry, is that the word I'm looking for? The idea that there is more than one god. and This god is just the head or whatever. I guess, really, uh, the textual name Elohim, isn't that rooted in... For some reason, I thought that that was a god from somewhere else, and then they borrowed it, or maybe El was a god. What is Elohim? It's masculine plural, that's interesting. Well, and that's what I mean, that I thought... And that's the word that's used for... uh, Is it Lord or God? No, Lord is... uh, Jehovah. Surely there's some good scholarship that explores the. I don't want to do scholarship too much. Early polytheism of Judaism. I mean, is it is it generally accepted outside of like you know diehard Christians that that early Ju- Judaism was polytheistic, or is that a yeah. minority opinion? No, it is. It is generally accepted among Old Testament scholars that the the Hebrew religion grew out of. It started off as polytheistic, and then 
became henotheistic with focus on Elohim and Yahweh, which right. then later became just uh, conflated into the same supreme deity, El Shaddai, the, you know, the god above all gods. Right. Um, and then they, they kind of said, okay, there's this one supreme deity. He has all these different names. And to this day, the Hebrews have a list of names for God. Right. Um, and it, but it's just this one guy. And it's, they're relentlessly focused on the idea that it's just this one guy. And the Muslims take that tradition uh, seriously as well. They, they, they have a very strong anti-polytheistic motif throughout much of the Quran, but that's not what we're covering tonight. So we'll get to the Quran later. Maybe in 2012. Because that's supposed <laughs> to be the end of the world, you know? Yeah, that'd be a good one. Actually, in case anyone's wondering, uh, Elohim is the Strong's H430 uh, reference, which is a masculine noun and is plural <coughs> ruler for rulers, judges, divine ones, angels, gods, uh, or goddesses, or godlike one, or special possessions of God, or the true God. I think uh, the idea that it, it came out of this masculine plural word that could also mean the gods. Like right. That's, that's one among many indicators uh, early on in Genesis. We see all these plural usages um, that, that the Hebrew religion had grown out of polytheism through the stage of monolatry, but by the time it came down to us in its current form, it had undergone these Deuteronomic redactions, so we can't really tell what the original text was. There's been an attempt to edit it to make it more relentlessly monotheistic by this point. Indeed. Well, I was just about to say, it's interesting that uh, you say the later Deuteronomic... Deuteronomic... Uh, I can't say it. Um, the D author went back and redacted the source of yes. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Well, on Blue Letter Bible, it actually has the root word uh, saying that it's the plural of H433 that I'm not going to try and say, which ultimately means God and is used in the later, like Deuteronomy, Second Chronicles, Nehemiah, and then some places in Job. But nowhere in the early Bible is it used. So that's kind of interesting. I want to I want to finish up. Are there any particular themes or stories you guys want to talk about from Genesis before we move on to Exodus? I, I wanted to talk about the rape of Dina because I feel like people don't know about it, and it's a fascinating story with an ambiguous moral. I think I think the Onan thing, uh, n- not enough people know about that. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I I knew about it, but it was never really mentioned much as a kid growing up. I don't think I ever got it in church. I, I don't think I found out about it until college. Uh, it tends to be emphasized more by... Um, it's kind of NC seventeen. You shouldn't know about it till college. Well, I think it's emphasized more by the um, the Mormons who place a, a much larger emphasis on not masturbating mm. um, than than evangelicals who tend not to really focus too much on masturbation. They don't really talk about it a whole lot. Um, Mormons, they've got those uh, things where you keep your hands like. Yeah, they're really big on not masturbating. Yeah, um, that's kind of which terrible. is terrible. Which is really fascinating because I mean I'm. We'll get into the whole problem, my problems with the Book of Mormon some other time, but um, that's a really bad reading of that story. It is. And it's a really unpleasant way to live your uh, teens, you know, yeah. especially since Mormon chicks are hot. It's going to be hard, and I mean that literally hard, all the time. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's not um, making the cut. Apparently, for Exodus, I need to make sure and bring and and get some beer. I'll get something interesting to drink for Exodus. <laughs> yeah. 
Sorry, man. Oh, no, it's all good. Um, okay, so Dina Onan, um, if you're Googling, that's a pretty straightforward. D-I-N-A-H-O-N-A-N. What's your what's your uh, one uh, pericope that you want to share with Paul? I'm going to say I thought the one uh, with Dina was would probably have been my one, but you already... Ah, I got it first. <laughs> the circumcision for love is kind of... Wait, I gotta, I gotta say, you ever heard that song? Is it, is it Meatloaf? I would do anything for love. <laughs> but, but not but, do that. I would not do that. Damn. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd go that far. That's pretty... Uh, uh, I could not help but think of that song when reading that, that story. I'm, I'm I, not I, kidding. I'm not making that up. I think it's a tough one because... Out of all of the books of the Old Testament, I think Genesis is the most well-known book. Yeah. The gen- the stories in Genesis are the most well-known, because it's something that most people are taught as children. Mm-hmm. At least the at least the first few stories of Genesis. The the creation myth, the, the Adam and Eve, the Cain and Abel, the Noah, the Lot... Um, you know, I got it. I mean, my church, we were a little nuts. Toward the we end, it gets into, more obscure. We got into the Esau and Jacob stuff more, but, too, but, but you, I mean, as a kid, I think even, you know, you're just mainstream Protestant churches are at least going to get up through the Lot story with the kids. The Rape of Lot, that's one that I would definitely <laughs> yeah. If you're going to read three stories, read Onan, Dinah, and The Rape of Lot. Uh, all, all three of those have my Bible sex tag, obviously. <laughs> there is one in particular that I had just thought of that... I dare you I, to come up with a story that doesn't involve sex. <laughs> but you can't. One that doesn't involve sex. Yeah, I, I don't think. And not one that's interesting. How about, <laughs> the, uh, people... how about the one where uh, Noah gets drunk on his own wine and his... Sons get all embarrassed because they see him naked. <laughs> yeah, what the hell? Laying around naked. The hell? That, that was What's kind of the odd. the moral of that story? Don't ever see your father's junk? For the love of Maybe. God. Cover your father's no, junk. No, because I didn't think... I thought that the point was because the the first the first son saw it and then went and got the other sons. I thought that was the... Like, it wasn't so much that the other sons... Or that they saw it. It was that the first son was like, oh, that's funny. Come over here and look at this. Uh, that, see what you're doing there? What you're doing there is you're being a pastor. You're you're writing stuff in that's not in the book to make it make sense. Well, it specifically what? says that Ham, who's the father of Canaan, saw him naked, and went and got his brothers, and the the other brothers were like, "Yeah, we need to put a blanket over him." And then right. when Noah woke up the next day with a bad hangover, he was like, "Ham, your descendants are cursed." First of all, how did he know it was Ham? I was just about to say that. I was actually now that you're saying that, I have that's a very good point. You're right. I just took it. I, I just took it and implied that since Ham was the one who found him and then ran off and told his brothers that that was, since he didn't cover him up, like right. it would have. Right. If he had just covered him up, then if only he'd had the foresight to walk into the room backwards with a blanket from the get go, yeah. without ever seeing his father's nakedness. Well, it says when Noah woke from his wine <laughs> and found out that his youngest son had done to him. So basically, uh, the brothers narked on him. I uh, don't think that's what it says in the King James. And remember, we're doing the King James. Okay. What chapter is that? Uh, 9, verse 24. Noah woke from his and wine. And knew. And knew what his younger son had done with him. Magically, he knew. It doesn't say that he was told. Okay, well, we also have to Actually, point out that the King James ver- in version is a really... Wait, what do you got here? 
That's NIV. This is shit. It's not um, any worse shit than the King James. No, but it's not any better. I'll grant you that. <laughs> by, by the way, the the word... Give is, us the Strongs, buddy. It's Strongs H3045, uh, which is to know, to learn to know, to perceive, uh, to experience, and then a bunch of other... So it's notes. ambiguous. It is, but there is, it is very ambiguous, because it is also to learn to know. So it... it could have been that he he learned through some means. But what did what had his son done to him? What had he done? Well, he went and told his brothers. I don't know. That's what, a good point. He went, what would you do? I'd go to my brothers and be like, dude, dad's passed out drunk on the couch. What should we do? <laughs> <laughs> he's naked and he's embarrassing himself. Somebody's right. going to take pictures and put it on the internet. Right. That's. I mean, it seems like the right thing to do. You go to your brothers and say, wait, we got to figure this out. And then the brothers, they go, well, we have a plan. We're going to walk in backwards with a blanket. Oh, okay, guys. If that's what you think will do work, you know? The word done could be translated to be observed, by the way. Okay. So it could be translated as, and found out what his younger son had observed unto him? Yes. So Noah's just pissed that his son saw his junk. It could be. Maybe this is... I am not a biblical translator. I'm just looking up the individual words in Hebrew. (laughs) Maybe the theme here is that if you have an uncircumcised penis, you should be embarrassed about it. Hey, that's actually could be a good point. Because Noah, he foresaw that his foreskin was too much. <laughs> he just he felt intuitively that God hates foreskin. Noah had too much penis for his sons. Yeah, he's too much. Just that's that's, that's all. That's that's tweet worthy. <laughs> Noah foresaw that his foreskin was. <laughs> I was trying to work a, a, another four in there, but I couldn't couldn't do it. Noah had just just had too much junk. His sons had to avert their eyes. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, I think we're done. <laughs> this, this is a horrible story with no good moral. I dare you to come up with a moral to this story that works. Don't look at your father naked? Yeah, see, actually, kind of think of it. I dare you to come up with a moral to any of these stories that works. Don't get drunk on your own wine and pass out naked in your tent. No, if you're going to take the trouble to plant your own vineyards by hand, you damn well better get drunk off your own wine. That's a lot of work. Just don't do it and get naked in your own tent. It's not How about like, if if you're God, don't create beings with free will. <laughs> that is anachronistic. Stop saying free will. That is not. Sorry, anachronistic. sorry. There's you're no right. You're right. Free will doesn't exist. My bad. Hebrew word for free will. If you're God, do not create agents with the ability to make decisions involving right and wrong. <laughs> Indeed. And if you do create them with the ability to make decisions involving right and wrong, do not uh, create a tempting tree and put it right next to them, (laughs) because that's just too much. And if you do that, if you go ahead and put the tempting tree right next to them, don't put any talking snakes in there (laughs) to go ahead and be salesmen for the tree, because that's too much. I'm sorry, the whole thing sounds like a prank to me. It's a setup from the get-go. He's like, well, I'm going to put this temptation in there, and well, that's not enough, let's put a salesman in there for it. It's, it's all a big setup. There's just no getting around it. Genesis 2, it's a setup. It is a setup. <laughs> I think somebody should re, 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 rewrite well, the uh, the uh, fall story as the snake is a car salesman. <laughs> the snake is a car salesman. What's it going to take to get you into the apple today? <laughs> it was not an apple. I know! He, he wasn't a car salesman either. Well, you keep hounding on me about free will. Come on now. (laughs) 
I just didn't want to uh, say fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It takes too long to say. See? Oh, okay. That took just now? Couldn't you have just said the fruit? No, because the car salesman, he's, he's, he's trying to get you in a particular make and model. I was just going to say we could expand the analogy and have it be, you know, a, a Ford Tempo or something. I think it was Gunquat. <laughs> the Ford Tempo. The Ford, the Ford Prefect. <laughs> What's it going to take to get you into the Ford Tempo? I don't think anyone's ever been tempted into a Ford Tempo. It could be. Actually, my sister-in-law might have been once. What is it? Uh... <laughs> wow, I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> that was horrible. Uh, I don't mean you, Amber. In, in Hitchhiker's Guide, what is it? The... Uh... Ford Prefect or the Ford Perfect? It's Prefect. <laughs> the Ford Prefect is a car that was only sold in Britain, so the joke's kind of lost in Americans. Right, but I, I was hoping to play on the words Ford Perfect. Never mind. Oh, perfect, fuck. I'm bunch sorry. of good evil. I'm sorry, I, I didn't. Oh no, you're good. Playing on Prefect. Yes, <sighs> I failed. Yeah. Okay. I thought you were making a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. Now I'm disappointed. And we've already done that one, by the way. We've already done that one. Yeah, that's a that's an earlier episode. Oh. <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide references are not allowed now. Oh, okay. I apologize. I won't do it again. We did it to death. And... You zarking fruit. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Well, so is that it? <laughs> yeah, unless you, you do have a particular story you want to tell that we haven't talked about. Um, not that I can think of. Well, I don't know. What was the thing with all the mandrakes? I haven't the slightest idea what that is. Did you get that? What are mandrakes again? Are those real? Uh, yeah, they're like roots or of something, aren't they? There's like a mandrake root or something. I don't know. I thought they were like some sort of mythical something or other. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like the basilisk. Whenever there's a word that I only remember from Harry Potter, I assume it's mythical. It's in uh, Genesis 30. And he said unto her, It is a small matter that thou hast taken my husband, and wouldest thou take away my son's mandrakes also? That's a root of the plant, the plant mandragora. Of course, oh. it's mandragora. How'd... And I knew it was a root. Actually, now that I'm looking up the actual... Uh, Strongs. It, oh, it, ah, it's a fertility plant. I was just about yeah, to say the, that. The it's Jews a... did think that mandrakes were somehow useful for the barren women. I'm going to have to get my wife some mandrakes. <laughs> uh, you don't want to give your wife nightshade. Is that what it is? Yeah. In that case, no. All parts of the mandrake plant are poisonous. I'll just give oh. her some beer and tell her it's mandrakes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have any stories. Sorry. You guys took them all. Fine. Yeah. Well, you get, at least get credit for the idea of going through the Bible. Book Do I? Book. Actually, I think that was uh, somebody else's idea. Really? I think so. Well, the friendly, the friendly atheist posted Yeah, but I don't, I don't read Hemant's blog enough to know that that's what he suggested. You're the one that passed it on to us. Oh, okay. By proxy. I think my wife actually passed it on to me. Or, I think my wife was actually the one that said... I haven't read the Bible before. I should do that. And then I was like... Dude, she should do that. Because sure. that way we won't be accused of being an old white guys club. Yeah, well, and we also won't be accused of a bunch of being ex-Christians complaining about a book we grew up on. How would yes. that change that? She's next well, perhaps we can oh, convince she? her to... Uh... Was she never a Christian? Was she ever a Christian? Uh... 
for a bit. I kind of assume everyone's an ex-Christian around here. Yeah, I guess. Right. Not not really in the same sense that I think... I almost heard her just then. Yeah, we heard... Right. She's in here. Here, hold on a second. There. Now she can hear you. Christy! Yes? What are you drinking? Uh, I was drinking Diet Dr. Pepper with Long Island iced tea mix in it. Awesome. Um, <laughs> that sounds disgusting. Okay, chew on warm Guinness. <laughs> now that we got the important question out of the way. We have. Are you an ex-Christian? No. Okay, that's what I thought. Huh. She always looks like such a wholesome girl to me. What do you think about Genesis? <laughs> what do you think about Genesis? Have you read it? Not all of it. Not all of it. Yeah, she's she's following Bruce's. She's wherever Bruce is. What? Where are you? Where are you up to? Joseph saying no to the Pharaoh's wife. Okay. Oh, I gotta say, on that story, I believe the Pharaoh's wife. I don't believe Joseph. <laughs> it's a classic. He said, she said. What's more plausible? That he tried to take her, or that she tried to take him, and then somehow he left his garment with her. I'm I'm sorry, but I find I find the Pharaoh's wife more believable in this. I side with her. Was it Pharaoh's wife? I didn't I didn't think it was a Pharaoh. I thought it was uh, Potiphar or something like that. I thought he was like a, a noble, but I didn't think he was the Pharaoh. Well, okay, guys. Whoever Joseph's master was, I'm siding with the wife. Guys and Christy. Okay. It's mm-hmm. important to remember, this never actually happened. <laughs> so what? I, I also I, argue about motivations in Hamlet. I mean, okay, I, fair enough. It's okay to argue about like who is doing what in fiction. I do it all the time. We okay. did it with Hitchhiker's Guide. Okay, that's true. But Hitchhiker's Guide is much more realistic. <laughs> than the Bible. <laughs> that's true. That's true. We, I think we I think we got enough on Genesis, really. Okay. This is... um. It's going so. a bit long. Yeah. I mean, granted, it was not the shortest book we're going to read this year. Well, Christy, right. I'm glad that uh, you're reading your way through Genesis. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it as well. Yeah. Okay. We need more diversity in our podcast. For the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, this is Damien. This is CJ. And this is Paul. <laughs> you guys have a great week. The Oklahoma Atheist Godcast is produced by the Oklahoma Atheists. The mission of the Oklahoma Atheists is to develop a community of individuals and families who value and promote critical thinking, free thought, reason, and a scientific worldview, and who seek to have a positive effect on the community at large through fellowship, rational discussion, community service, and education. For more information, please visit our website at www.oklahomaatheist.com. The music for today's show is from the song God is Dead by Jaron Lake and is reproduced here under a Creative Commons license. Jared's music in the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast are hosted courtesy of the Internet Archives Community Audio Collection, available at www.archive.org. To join discussion about the ideas presented, presented in today's show, please visit our blog 
at blog.glomaatheist.com.